Welcome to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company. Welcome to another Altamimi COP28 podcast. We're delighted today to be joined by Simon Pickett, Manager of Retro and Thesis Middle East, and Miles Tatlock, who's Principal Consultant at Antithes Group in the UK. Today's session is going to look very, very much at the practicalities of ESG and the build-up to COP28. So what we're going to cover principally is net zero. What do companies need to do to reduce their impacts on the climate? And climate risk. What do companies need to do to reduce their exposure to risks from the climate? For both topics, I'm hoping that we're going to cover the perspective of financial institutions and also we're going to drill down into what the key considerations are for corporates. So to kick us off, Simon, ESG is gaining momentum now. Good question, I think, is how it differs from sustainability, and maybe particularly to focus on what the differences are globally and regionally. Sure. Well, thanks very much for uh, having us here with you today, Francis. So in terms of that question, so I mean, it's gaining momentum now, I think, because there's a realization around the climate emergency, the biodiversity emergency, for example, that it's not only individuals or governments that need to take action, it's, it's corporates as well um, that need to start considering these issues. So ESG really was born out of the investment community, essentially. So to understand then and, and to guide investments, understanding what the ESG, environmental and social governance risks are um, associated with those investments. But what we're now seeing is that that's been adopted much, much wider outside of um, the financial sphere. And it's now been adopted by companies pretty much across the board. So perhaps what would have been a sustainability strategy a number of years ago is now an ESG strategy. So it's really kind of, um, it's been taken on board by a lot within within the business community, within a number of corporates. Um, and then clearly it's been far more widely adopted out of Europe, the UK, the US, um, compared to the Middle East region here, where it's probably only within the last, I would say, two years or so that ESG has really caught on within the region. So I think it's probably safe to say that, that we are somewhat behind um, in the region in terms of the adoption of, um, of ESG, but it's now starting to move in the, uh, in the right direction. Better late than never, though, eh? Indeed. <laughs> My take on it is that we're governed by the Paris Climate Accords on this, and 1.5 degrees centigrade was the target was intended to be achieved, and we're probably beyond that now. I think we're in the realms of adaptation. So I think the second yeah. climate risk is fundamental. But in terms of you know achieving net zero, I think companies are confronted very, very much with a, a tsunami of um, reporting requirements, which are emanating largely from Europe. And I know Miles is, is, is probably going to have a lot to say on that later. Mm. The link between ESG and climate, um, I mean, I think that that is something that's becoming more and more understood and grappled with here, including we've got COP28 coming up in Dubai. Miles, what have you got to say on that, that particular point? Yeah, so maybe if I start globally, and Simon, if you could chip in regionally mm. from the Middle East, uh, just globally, with Anthesis, we work mostly with financial institutions because they want to understand 
how climate is going to impact their portfolio. So in terms of how both they impact climate and the opportunity to add value to their portfolio, as well as the risk of climate impacting their portfolio and the risk of downsides or brown sort of discounts at exit. So what we do with our clients is work through what really matters most. And when you start to understand how climate will unfold, it is a wicked problem. There is radical uncertainty about it. But if the worst was to happen, what that actually means financially, and it's not just financial institutions, it trickles down then to the corporates. So the Financial Stability Board are very aware of this. And as of, I think it was 2015, they convened the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, then a voluntary reporting framework to effectively ensure that companies around the world and financial institutions were reporting their climate-related financial risk consistently. And that has now become more of a regulatory momentum. So within ESG, climate is one of the most material factors because we don't know exactly how it's going to impact firms financially. And it is critical to report in line accurately with the TCFD and with understanding your risks to and from the climate. And just in terms of drilling down a little bit more into, you might be thinking, well, if the climate doesn't change very much, it might not impact the firm. Well, it's the relative change and understanding what the pathways of that impact might be. So even if you are in a hot climate already, if it gets even hotter, what does that mean to productivity? What does that mean to physical infrastructure? And the same with flooding, the same with any number of physical risks, whether it be extreme storms. If the worst was to happen, what does that actually mean to the finan- your financial returns on a yearly basis? And I, Simon, I don't know if you want to add anything more regionally for the Middle East there. Yeah, I think... What we've seen in the region here is it's very much being led by the financial institutions because of their colleagues in Europe, in the US, et cetera, et cetera. So we're now seeing um, a number of banks, sovereign wells, private equity firms, et cetera. They have that broader understanding that there are risks to their potential risks, I should say, to their portfolio. So, so, so we are seeing ESG, if not, if not so much driven more the financial institutions are certainly well ahead of the curve compared to a lot of other sectors within the region. I think then for other sectors, um, well, to greater awareness, I think there was a large delegation from the Middle East at COP26 in Glasgow and, of course, COP27 last year in Egypt. And we've got the COP28 upcoming here towards uh, in the UAE towards the end of this year. So I think then that's more of just a, a general awareness, understanding that, that, that companies need to start moving towards ESG. I think governments um, are also starting to make announcements. So some of the, the larger companies within the Middle East are now starting to uh, take on board and develop ESG frameworks and, uh, and strategies. But I don't think that the vast majority of companies here in the region yet have gone beyond the starting to measure their carbon footprint, starting to think about their decarbonisation strategy, because that's really what ESG is all about, isn't it? It's, it's, it's as much measuring as, uh, as anything else. Um, very few organisations, I think, in the region have yet started to think about climate risk and how it might impact upon their business in the future. It's, it's, a, 
it's an interesting point you make because I think the risk of ignoring this and not doing anything is going to leave you with stranded assets that have no value. So everybody's making a big investment decision at the moment in this region. Has to be considering the kind of thing that Miles has been saying around resilience in different kind of temperature ranges. But we've also got to be thinking about well, what's the return going to look like if these things eventuate. Huh. And I think you know from from what I read and what I what I see on the on the net, the climate predicament is accelerating. You know, I think it's it's fair to describe it as a wicked problem. It certainly is. And I think adherence to regulation is only going to accelerate and regulations are going to get tighter and tighter and tighter. So in the region at the moment, I think we're in a, an environment of voluntary reporting. It's not mandatory yet, as it is in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. I think that's going to be something that probably falls out of, of COP28. And businesses in the region are going to have to start embarking on properly configured net zero journeys. And what you guys at Anthesis do is kick them off on that. And maybe we'll come to what we can do as lawyers a bit later in the discussion. So, Miles, Simon, starting with net zero as a specific concept, what should financial institutions and corporates in a region be thinking of doing? What, what can they actually grasp in, in, in that context? Yeah, I think net zero is the most practical one here. So when we think of climate, Generally, so I zoom out completely. There's the transition side of climate, so reducing our GHG emissions to meet the Paris Agreement, as well as the physical side of climate. So understanding how physical climate change will impact businesses. And the net zero side, actually reducing emissions, is much more straightforward. You have a GHG footprint, your greenhouse gas inventory, that says how much your 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 greenhouse gas emissions. To be net zero, none of us can right now. Net zero, in its simplest sense, is something we all have to do for the atmosphere to be in balance by 2050. So we can only work toward aligning toward a net zero. And that means a reduction in emissions, quite frankly. So we work with our firms, our clients, whether it be financial institutions with large portfolios or individual corporates, large or small, with reducing their greenhouse gas footprints. And they do this in line with a pathway, a science-aligned pathway that gets us or keeps us within a 1.5 degree world. And the practical takeaway of that is that even as economies grow, that growth needs to decouple from GHG emissions. So financial growth goes up, but GHG emissions go down. And you might think practically, how do you do that? Well, if you're growing, let's just take a very simple office business. If you're growing an office with a thousand people and it's using gas for its scope one and electricity from fossil fuel for its scope two, if you're growing to say 2000 people in a few years time, you need to grow into an office that doesn't use gas, that uses a renewable source for heating your hot water and heating the building. And for your scope two, for your electricity, you need to be using renewables. So that is how you grow greener, if you like, or grow with reduction. And it gets harder in scope three. But I just say that generally reducing in line with science is roughly, if you were to just take the scopes out of perspective, it's roughly 3% year on year. So that's what we all need to do at every company and individual level. It's slightly higher for scope one and two because you have more control. So 4.2%, slightly lower for scope three, it's 2.5% year on year roughly 
happen through time and that those those percentages will ratchet through time as the world doesn't transition fast enough so i've said numbers there that are relevant to 2020 but those ratchets could be higher i.e the proportion of reductions that are needed year on year are higher and that gets to the point around investment it's very tricky isn't it because the process you're you're describing carries with it a certain embedded carbon hazard and in terms of creating new office space which is more environmentally friendly and then you've got to work out what you do with the old office space but i mean i think it's a particular pinch points for facilities like data centers which use vast amounts of energy and require vast amounts of cooling yeah you know, it's interesting to see how those have developed and how that market is is approaching it because that's one particular area where more and more capacity is being built in i suppose my other observation of what you've 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 just said is also in terms of scope one and scope two, they're directly under the control of the business. Scope three is where you get to impose KPIs in your supply chain. And I think businesses are going to have to start looking at their contracts uh, and working out well, where are these scope three emissions and what can we do to incentivize our supply chain to actually behave properly. And all of this, of course, is wrapped up in reporting requirements, which are becoming ever more stringent. And you know, one of the things that we have to be mindful of in this discussion is really the risk of greenwashing, which I think is going to get lots of people in trouble in the future in terms of capital raising exercises on the back of green initiatives. So what do you think actionable measures might be that corporates could take really with urgency? Because I think we are in an urgent situation to mainstream net zero into their businesses. Shall I start on that globally? And then, Simon, if you take the regional there, it's scope three. Scope three is where most of the emissions are. So understanding your scope three data is key. That's the first step. Once you understand that and the scale of that, you're reducing your greenwash risk. Because if you take a business that that has an office, that's their scope one and two, that might be relatively small. Their scope three, everything upstream, their suppliers and downstream, their customers, is much greater. So if that office was a software company that was that had a large scope three from the data center, Francis, that they, you said they might be use, using, their scope three from that supplier might be large. How do you get that data center to reduce their emissions? Because you don't have control, but you are accountable and you do have influence. You're accountable as soon as in your reporting, whether it be mandatory or voluntary, depending on the jurisdiction, once you've said what your emissions are, you're accountable to reducing them. So then you can only set targets um, to engage, to engage and influence your scope three. So let's say office company, software, sorry, a software company has a large scope three and they set an engagement target because they use three big data centers and they get two of those data centers through their influence and their control and pulling levers to set their own scope one and two targets. That is then having that influence, that theory of change to get economies to start accelerating towards reduction. Now, that is easier if you're a bigger company and you're in the West where ambition around this initiative, such as Microsoft, is very high. But when you step into emerging markets or markets where there is generally less maturity in these conversations and this understanding, the hurdles start creeping in and it's where do you start and how do you get through the challenges i don't know simon if you have anything to add on the, the regional context there yeah absolutely and i think there's a big element of truth there 
that applies to the region because you know a lot of companies here even those that are probably further ahead than uh, than the general pack have really in the in the main only looked at their scope one and two emissions so scope three in terms of footprinting is is currently a challenge in the region and 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 i can only imagine i'd I don't pretend to um, to fully understand, but I can only imagine uh, the, the challenge that businesses here in the region would face having some of those conversations around scope three emissions with their with their larger suppliers, and never mind their entire value chain, particularly those located in the region here. So I think that is probably the biggest challenge that we have in the region here. But as you said, Miles, it's actually the biggest opportunity. So it's a one that we've not yet started to work towards, unfortunately. It's certainly something that we've grappled with as a business in the region with with the the world's largest Arabic law firm. And we've gone through a process of trying to mainstream these issues into our own business. But frankly, the the, the prominence of these issues in the region is not as high as it would be in Europe or North America. So there is a process of ongoing education and uh, persuasion around all of these issues. And it's particularly pertinent, I think, in this region, because it is linked economically so much to hydrocarbons. But if you look at things like Saudi Vision 2030, you know, it's all about transitioning. Decoupling was was the word I think you used in, in, in terms of, of um, how the economy has to work in future and how growth in particular has become decoupled from greenhouse gas emissions. So you're switching to climate risk and the impacts from climate change. I mean, my, my reading is that things are accelerating. We've certainly seen with what's happened in Canada with the forest fires uh, turning New York into a kind of scene from Blade Runner. We're seeing all sorts of droughts afflicting people across the world and floods also in Pakistan last year. Things are accelerating and getting worse. So what should financial institutions and corporates in the region be thinking around actually climate risk itself, setting aside net zero. I mean, yeah. Sorry, go on. You start off, Miles, and I'll I'll bring it to the region. Okay. Yeah. So from a from a global context here, um, understanding climate risk to a corporate or a financial institution is absolutely critical in the timeframes of. 2030, 2040, 2050. And these are timeframes we don't normally think about. So if you are making business critical investment decisions now and climate is to change and to worsen and you are blind to what the impacts might be, those decisions might cause financial loss or a financial performance that you are not aware of. What the best are doing at the moment is using various tools to understand what the climate risks are. So under the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure, the TCFD, there is a process of scenario analysis that many firms are aligning with. And that is saying exactly how bad it could be in a future year under different scenarios. So if the world takes or stays in line with a 1.5 degree pathway, what are the, what are the impacts going to be then financially versus a three degree world, say? And you can take any number of scenarios and they're not going to be linear. The temperature trajectory is going to be different and the impacts of each risk are going to be different. Now, financial institutions take a very fairly broad brushed approach to this because they have multiple 
investments in multiple companies. And so they need to understand where the highest risks are to understand whether or not they should be investing. For private equity firms, for example, the investment is less liquid. So if they're holding that investment for five or 10 years and the climate changes in that period and you haven't adapted or planned to reduce your risk, that is a potential risk at exit if some of the worst impacts are to happen. Whereas if you have more liquid investments, you can make decisions to change what your investment portfolio is made up of and reduce your risks. Now, for the poor corporate that has no sight of the risks, they are stuck with operating in climates that are potentially changing quite rapidly. And I know that, Simon, you're you're based in the Middle East and there is a lot of seawater around you and the, the, the climate is relatively extreme there already. But maybe it's worth sort of coloring a little bit about what those risks might look like and how prepared the region is. Yeah, we'll do, Miles. So, so, so yeah, the, there's obviously a few um, unique environmental challenges already in the region. We're in one of, if not the most arid regions on the planet. It's obviously one of the hottest regions on the on the planet as well. And if we look at some of the predictions for change in the in the not too distant future, you know. The wet bulb temperature, for example, is predicted during the summer period to exceed the limits of, of human survivability. So if you then have a big operation which requires outdoor workers during the summer period, that, that, that that's going to potentially put your business in jeopardy during certain parts or your staff in jeopardy during certain parts of the year. We're very, very low-lying coastal in many parts of the uh, of the Middle East. So, so clearly their sea level rise is an issue. So for a corporate and if they have assets that are lying within those areas or you could also say um that applies to an investor as well that has a number of assets in in those areas then that they they could be potentially at risk in the in the near future and and we've also read of predictions of hurricane type events in the gulf as a result of future climate change we don't know if they will transpire but that is a risk according to climate models so 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 what then of storm surge and, and, and that's a real issue then or could potentially be a real issue for both the corporates but also investors that have certain built assets and other assets that lie within those regions those areas at risk so yeah i think it applies globally but but there are some certain unique challenges here in the region and as i've said before a lot of those corporates, perhaps less so the uh, the financial institutions, haven't really yet gotten around to thinking about their risk. They're only at the stage of understanding what their impact is on climate, not the other way around. I absolutely echo what you're saying, Simon. I mean, I think there are various phrases that people are going to start thinking about. Wet bulb temperature is one. Albedo mm. is another when you consider what's happening with the potential loss of ice in the Arctic. And all of these things are going to manifest there's profound risks to the climate in the region. So the, the, the flip side to that is, well, how do we mitigate it? We mitigate that through net zero, through decisions that are taken. Just to, to wrap things up, COP28 is, is, is fast approaching. And one of the themes which I predict is, 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 is going to be heavily talked about at that event is the, the need for investment in infrastructure and this kind of dissonance between the global north and the global south. Um, we've spoken about financial institutions today. What's your take on that? How how quickly can we get the investment in place to assist with adaptation? I think it's a just the general reallocation of capital is needed because investing in adaptation for risks that might not unfold in the immediate term is a large investment 
risk to those that aren't aware of the wider climate risk and the financial downside. So it's very difficult to justify investing in something when there are many other priorities that come first. That is from the adaptation side. So the, the example adaptation is about reducing the f- risk to physical climate change. So building the wall higher or keeping buildings cooler, etc. The reallocation of capital into net zero, however, into transitioning the economy, I think we've already seen an acceleration in the West, and that is just going to cascade across regions. Simply, it is not just about saving the environment and protecting the world. It is also about making money. Many investors out there realize the opportunity that the transition to a zero carbon economy is going to bring. And so what we've seen at the recent COPs is that financial institutions have excelled themselves in coming together in alliances and producing guidance documents for best practice, voluntary initiatives to drive investment in the transition. And that is something that we do in Anthesis in writing guidance for those financial institutions, such as the science-based target initiative guidance for private equity firms or the institutional investor group on climate change, net zero guidance for private equity, to name but a few. Simon, I don't know if you would echo any of that for the Middle East region. I mean, I think I would probably say it's it's one area where the region may well have an advantage. You know, there is significant wealth in the region, in large part off the back of, of hydrocarbon extraction. But the stated aims, I mean, the, the two big players, KSA, UAE, um, all, all of their um, agendas and national visions are now about that transition. Um, towards decarbonisation, and what we've seen um, here in the region is is the real beginnings, I believe, of the, the redeployment of that capital into decarbonisation. You know, we've we've got PIF in Saudi pu- pushing that agenda. You've got the likes of Mubadala and Taka, um, particularly now pursuing renewable energy investments globally, not just here within the region. So I do think actually that. The region could be be a real leader in uh, in climate investment because of the availability of that capital. I think it's very challenging for people in the region to to get their heads around this. I mean, it's it's it's, it's difficult enough for the, for the professionals involved. But it seems to me that there are lots and lots of what I call kind of big podiums of climate activity and reporting and net zero and private equity regulations and reporting on, on stock exchanges and so on. But what's missing, it seems to me, for us is a kind of theory that joins all of these things up together. And I think that's where you guys at Anthesis play a vital role, actually, in getting those conversations started within corporates to make sure that they can understand the kind of terrain that they've got across to make sure that they don't end up with stranded assets and that their inventory, their their, their, their stock is, is, is resilient and they're also capable of, of achieving at zero targets within their supply chain and within the businesses themselves. So I think it's it's vital to get these conversations going on with corporates. As you say, Simon, I think the financial community is very, very well primed for this set of initiatives. It's now got to cascade down meaningfully into everybody's lives. People need to be given some agency, which is I think where where you all come in. And then we we follow on and help with the the legal consequences and the regulations and the drafting and the supply chain. I think exactly. we're probably there for today. Thank you so much, 
Simon and Miles for participating in this. I mean, there's a huge amount that we could have spoken about, but I mean, I hope that will give viewers and listeners a flavour where the dialogue is going in, in, in the run-up to COP28. So any final comments, guys? I think certainly being located here in the region, hopefully a time of change. And I think we are going to see a real impetus now following the uh, the COP at the end of this year. And I think, yeah, just to echo your point there, we're not there yet in terms of an understanding within corporates that they have to start taking action as well. But we're quietly confident that that, that we'll see that start to change over the course of this year and, uh, and post-COP. And many thanks indeed for having us. My pleasure. Miles, final word from you. Just thank you for having me. And I think that education and leveling up everyone's understanding around climate and for us to hear from others is absolutely key because we're not always right um, everyone's view is important so and i think i think it has to be approached with a degree of humility doesn't it given the what's at stake thank you both so much and i hope viewers and listeners enjoyed this Altamimi cop 28 podcast thank you very much Thank you for listening to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company.